Uh, good morning, church. Hey, welcome into our Advent season this morning. And if, uh, I don't know what your tradition or your background is, but if that word Advent sounds churchy to you, it is, it is. But it's, you know, it's one of the awesome things that happens at church uh, during this uh, particular season leading up to Christmas. And uh, we want to capture that today. I have to admit that opening worship set kind of wrecked me today. Wasn't that amazing? Man, just to bring that hope and joy into the house this morning, and hopefully that just comes right into your heart as well. I want to welcome you today, welcome our online audience. If this is the first time that you're in-house or outhouse, I guess online's a better word for that. Uh, you know, just want to, want to kind of welcome you into, into the place today. Uh, we're all together in this uh, celebration of Advent, and I uh, really appreciate, again, uh, you being here today. So let me just tell you a little bit of what's happening uh, before we jump into our message. Uh, all through December, we're going to be meeting uh, for this series, and then we're going to come together on Christmas Eve. Our Christmas Eve services are 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 7 o'clock, and 11 o'clock p.m. Uh, you have those four options here at our Shippensburg campus. It's 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock. Greencastle campus, 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock. So hopefully you can make one of those eight services. Online audience, we'd love for you to be able to join us. I believe we're going to be putting that out there as well, so we'll let you know about that. But uh, we'd love to spend Christmas Eve with you. Christmas Eve is a special moment here at Grand Point, and we'd love all of you to come in here. It's going to be family-friendly services, so kids will be in here as well. And it's usually a packed house, but it, it's, it's awesome. Now, let me just tell you a little bit what's happening on New Year's Day, actually Christmas Day. Christmas Day, we do not have services here at, at any of our campuses. We're going to do an online service that we'll be producing for you, and that will be available anytime after 7 a.m. Just tune in. It's going to be a short, about 20-minute service, but uh, just to get for you to gather around uh, the tree with your family, maybe some friends coming in, uh, you can just join that on, on New Year's Day. That which is also a Sunday, uh, we have one service, one service at 10 o'clock a.m. I don't know how this is going to work. This, this could either be awesome or it could be horrible. I mean, I, I don't know if we can get everybody in one service, but we're going to have communion together and just do some singing and just, uh, just really uh, cast some vision for the new year. So we hope that you can be a part of that either here or online. So welcome again. Again, first time guest, welcome. Uh, we'd love to just get to know you and uh, you enhance our services. Uh, I'll tell you that right now. One more thing before we jump into our message today. Christmas uh, season is a time of of giving, and we have a lot of options for giving here at Grand Point. Out in the lobby, we have a Christmas tree that has white snowflakes on it, and every one of those snowflakes represents a need uh, from one of our community partners. Uh, we partner with uh, agencies throughout our community, and uh, one of those... Uh, and some of those uh, gifts, all, all of those gifts go to them. Now, if you have taken one of those snowflakes over the past couple of weeks, make sure you bring back your gift by next Sunday. Uh, we'd love to get those gifts out to those community partners. Down the hallway, there's a table set up right in front of the youth uh, center uh, that has uh, it has ornaments for orphans. It's kind of a neat little tradition that we've been doing for uh, quite a few years. Uh, you buy an ornament and it goes to support an orphan. In, uh, in certain countries. Now, I would advise you to get there before my wife does because she buys one of those ornaments for every one of our grandkids. And you know we've got a bunch of them, so uh, she'll probably buy them out. So get there before she does. That might help me out as well. 
Uh, so anyway, no, just, uh, just support that. And then uh, one more thing. Christmas Eve, we do an offering again. And it's just one of those things. We want you to come without feeling obligated to give. But if you, if you just want to uh, bring an offering on Christmas Eve as well, that money is going to two uh, additional community partners over and above what we support on a regular basis. Uh, we'll be going to Habitat for Humanity and then also... Uh, there we go. I, I hear an applause for that. And then also to our Maranatha Ministries, which supports our local food bank and the cold weather shelter. Both of those are just worthy organizations, and we just want to bless them in a great way. And then finally, let me just say this. If you're, at, if you're doing some year-end giving, year-end Christmas giving, uh, you know, I, I just want to invite you to consider Grand Point as one of those options. I know you have a lot of, a lot of places that you can give uh, year-end giving and, you know, whatever. And, and if God leads you somewhere else, please do that. But I'll tell you right now, uh, we, if you consider us, and, and I'll share this with you because our vision still exceeds our resources. And uh, we believe there's more churches to plant, whether globally or locally. We believe there's more leaders to develop and raise up. We believe there's more children and parents that we can uh, gather together to be part of Grand Point. We believe there's more community organizations yet that we can be involved in. So basically how it works here is uh, is we will we will function at the speed of your generosity, right? So we will move at the speed of your generosity. And when you give, uh, we will move. Now, I say that within the context and within the spirit of utmost gratitude, because you have, you have been, without a doubt, one of the most generous congregations that I know. You have given, uh, you have blessed, and uh, we are so uh, we are so blessed. Our ministry is healthy because of you, uh, and so I'm not sharing this to just kind of say, hey, you've got to give. I'm just giving this as an option for you as well. So thank you again for being here today. Thank you for what you mean uh, to the church. Uh, we're going to continue in our Advent series, which is Come, Lord Jesus. And this flows right out of our study from the book of the Revelation, which we finished in the book of, within the month of November. Uh, Revelation ends with these words, come Lord Jesus, right? And so we picked up on that and we're continuing that invitation all the way through December and even into Christmas Eve. And we're adding a very specific part of that invitation every time we meet. So last week when we got together, we said, come Lord Jesus, replace our fears, right, with your peace. And many of you surrendered fears last weekend. And I hope that made a difference uh, in your life. We're still praying about that. And today we're coming together and we're saying, come Lord Jesus, replace our shame with your amazing grace. Next week when we're together, Pastor Chad is going to be bringing that message, and his message is, come Lord Jesus, replace our guilt with your forgiveness. And then we're going to come together on Christmas Eve, and we're going to say, come Lord Jesus, replace the darkness. Darkness in our lives, darkness in our community, darkness in our world, come replace that with your light, the light of Christ. And we're going to light the candles, we're going to light this place up, and we're going to celebrate that. So it's all an invitation And we're framing this within the context of kind of this great exchange. When I was growing up, there were a couple expressions that my parents would use on me, uh, particularly my mother uh, would often use this one. And uh, one of the things that my mom said to me uh, frequently was, Lawrence, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And it was usually followed by the twin uh, expression, don't you ever, ever do that again. 
Uh, a couple times I remember that expression being used. One was I was a kid. I had this utmost fascination with Evil Knievel. I love this guy. He was my hero. If you don't know who Evil Knievel is, you'll have to Google that. But this guy jumped things with his motorcycle. And so I got my bike and I started building ramps. And I would jump things. And the more successful I was, the more things I would add to jump over, like Evil Knievel did. You add another car, another bus, or another distance. And so I remember uh, my probably one of my greatest successes was jumping this big tractor tire. So I lived on a farm and there was this big tractor tire that was laying down. I think my mom planted petunias in it or something like that. And so I built a ramp and I would jump that tire. I cleared it easily. So then I added a cement block on the other side, cleared that one. Then I added the lawnmower, push mower, and I cleared that uh, successfully. The next object I added was my little brother, Freddie. I did. He would do anything I asked him to do. I said, Freddie, lay down. Lay down on your back. Put your hands at your side. Look up and don't move. And so I got back. He's laying there. I jumped back and I ramped it, cleared him. And uh, that successful jump was not celebrated when it was discovered. Rather, I was kind of rebuked and disgraced with the words, don't you ever do that again. Don't you ever put your little brother down there again. Uh, and, And you ought to be ashamed of yourself. The second time I remember this being used was later in my teens. I was working construction. I was still living at home and working construction. And I carried uh, my lunch to work. And I had one of these little black barn-like lunch kettles and, you know, a Stanley thermos on the side. It's kind of a construction thing. And one day after lunch, one of my coworkers, Bill, uh, caught this bird, this starling. He decided to play this practical joke on me. And he put this bird in my lunch kettle. Well, apparently when a bird goes in the lunch kettle and it's dead, he kind of goes dormant. So there was no movement. I had no idea who was in there. So I took my lunch pail home. I set it on the kitchen counter where I always did. My mom would get to it when she did the dishes. So I'm upstairs in my bedroom and I hear the scream. And my mom opened my lunch kettle. This bird became alive, man. He flew out, right, and flew in my mom's face, flew around the kitchen, and then landed in the upper cabinet, upper cabinet. The door was open where my mom kept the china. And so this bird's in there. Now, the bird didn't break anything, but he was obviously on a diet of blueberry laxatives because he, he kind of messed things up pretty bad in there. So, so my, mom, uh, my mom's screams were now accompanied by, Lawrence, get down here now. I came down, I got the bird, took him outside, and I came in, and my mom says, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Don't you ever, ever do that again. Had a hard time convincing her that I had nothing to do with this. This was Bill. But listen, I'm wondering if there's someone that walked in here today and you're feeling ashamed of yourself. You're feeling ashamed of something in the past, something that you did. Let me give you a definition of shame, and then you may be able to uh, kind of connect something in your life with this. But shame goes something like this. A dictionary definition of shame is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. And for many of us, shame is this idea that we've missed the mark. We've missed the mark according to our own standard or the perception of someone else's standard for our lives. Now, most of us maybe would have shame in our lives that are far more more significant than my simple, silly examples. But nevertheless, it still fits this definition There was a time when, man, we messed up morally or ethically or spiritually. We made some bad choices in any one of those categories, and now it's kind of kind of haunting us with shame. And maybe it's been a long time ago, or maybe it's been recent. 
Some of the shame that we have is actually open to the public, right? It became public. People know about it. People in our lives, the world around us know about it. And we live every single day with the reminder that we've messed up. We did something bad. Maybe some of that shame that you have is still yet to be known. Somehow you've been able to conceal it and the consequences of it, but nevertheless, it's still something inside of you. It's something that you live with and it haunts you every single day of your life. Because see, when you have undisclosed shame, hidden shame, you have to cover your tracks, right? You have to watch what you do. You have to talk to, uh, watch who you talk to and watch what you say because you don't want anything to be revealed. We even have to become okay with lying a little bit because uh, we don't want to reveal this. And we, we, we end up living this semi or maybe all out miserable life because of the shame within us. And I want to address this today because whether your shame is public, whether it's known, or whether it's still private, you don't have to live with it. You do not have to live with this. And so what I want to do today is I want to walk us through some steps that perhaps will take us uh, to a place because like what we're doing in this Advent series is we're working with all of these practical issues in our lives and we're putting them within this context of the great exchange. We're exchanging fear for God's peace. We're exchanging shame for God's grace. We're exchanging guilt for God's forgiveness. And so this all comes in with this great exchange. In her book, Unashamed, Healing Our Brokenness and Finding Freedom from Shame, Heather Davis Nelson writes, she says, shame keeps us from being honest about our struggles, our sins, and our less than, our less than perfect moments. Fear of shame drives us to perfectionism in all areas of our lives so that there would be no imperfection to be noticed or judged. Shame is what we heap on others when they fail us. Shame is, it keeps us holding on to bitterness and refusing to forgive. We're impacted by the shame of sin committed against us, and that often drives a wedge in our relationships. Shame can even be deeper and darker. It's what a perpetrator gives to his victim as he violates her. She will carry that shame forever unless she can find a way to bring it into the light of day. Shame can be the lack of parental affection and attention that leaves a child with this indelible mark of being not worthy. Shame arises from past sin that seems to forever haunt you. You know that sin that you feel like you can't share with anyone. So you stay in hiding, hold up into this bunker of one, never letting anyone get close enough to see you or at least to see that part of you. And that's a horrible and I would add unnecessary way to live. So I think it's important that we address this this morning because this is so real, isn't it? So raw and it's, it's a part of, part of life and it's a part of who we are. So what I want to do today is I want to just kind of help us discover a way forward that releases us from that bondage of shame. And I believe the Christmas story is actually the answer to that. Most of us know that Bible verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's a great Christmas verse. But do you know the verse that comes after that? John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into this world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Saved from what? Saved from sin. And you know what the first uh, response from sin is? Think with me all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, we have the account, uh, the account of God created man and woman. And in verse 25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked, and we're not ashamed. Shame was not a part of the original creation. I want you to imagine what that would be like. 
Just imagine, no shame, imagine being psychologically and, uh, available and transparent, psychologically vulnerable and have nothing at all in your life, things that you have done or even thought that would elicit disappointment if someone else found out about it. Imagine that. No shame at all about your thought life. No shame at all about your actions. No shame at all about those aspirations that you have. Well, that's the way it was at the very beginning. Shame was not a part of the original creation. Adam and Eve were naively and gloriously free and transparent, completely open. They knew no shame until sin. Sin changed all that. We read in Genesis chapter three, uh, verse seven, that uh, when they sinned, they began, the first thing they did was they hid. They hid from God and then they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. You know what they were doing? They were hiding their shame. And we've been doing that ever since, all because of sin. Now, typically, we don't associate shame and uh, disgrace with a Christmas story. Like, we'd rather think of hope and peace and joy and love and light and angels and baby Jesus and all that kind of thing. But let me show you how shame and disgrace actually works its way into the Christmas story. Now, you've heard the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke or maybe from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, and you kind of know what happens with Mary and Joseph and with the shepherds and with the angels and with the innkeeper and all that. But I'm convinced, I'm convinced, I want to I show you how this works because I'm convinced that the Christmas story or the power of the Christmas story is not just in what happened, but in how it happened. The power of the Christmas story is in how it happened. Now, Matthew chose to introduce us to Jesus by giving us the names of his ancestors. So it's no surprise that Matthew chapter one is just a whole bunch of names. But what is surprising is some of the names uh, that Matthew chose to include in the family tree because oftentimes you leave certain people out of the family tree, right? You've got that family member that's a little bit of embarrassment to you, uh, has a shameful past or whatever. Okay, you know, when you're talking about your family, you usually don't mention that person, right? You keep them out, but Matthew doesn't. He includes everyone, even the cousin Eddie's. Uh, so for example, in verse five, we read about this woman named Rahab. Matthew chapter one, verse five. It says, Salmon was the father of Boaz. His mother was Rahab. Now, not many people in that day would have included Rahab in the family tree, not only because she was a woman, but also because she introduced prostitution into the family tree. In fact, when you read about her, when she's introduced in the book of Deuteronomy, she is introduced as Rahab the harlot, which usually doesn't give credibility to the family line, right? Or the family tree, because there's a sense of shame that goes along with that. But it's here. It's here, right in the family tree of Jesus. In verse three, we read that Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. So Judah and Tamar are the parents of these two boys, Perez and Zerah. Sounds normal. Sounds kind of like a normal family. But what this represents is actually a scandal where the whole family like ends up in the Mari Povich show. Uh, so without going into a lot of detail, Judah was Tamar's father-in-law. I mean, that's just not right, right? So I guess in, in his defense, when he had relationships with her, he thought she was a prostitute. I don't know if that's a defense or not, but it represents a lot of shame in this family background. And then you jump down to verse six, Matthew chapter one, verse six, it says, Jesse was the father of King David and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, uh, the widow of 
Uriah. Now, every Jew reading this would have been glad to see David uh, in the family tree because David was prophesied to be in the line of Messiah. Uh, To just mention David, though, would have been enough. That's all they would have needed. But Matthew says, no, he's the father of Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife. Like, why are we bringing up a, uh, a previous marriage? See, if you wanted to know how Solomon came into the world, why not just say he was the son of David and Bathsheba? But Bathsheba's not even mentioned, only that Solomon's mother was the wife of Uriah. So right here in the Christmas story, in the family line of Joseph, right, we have prostitution, we have incest, we have uh, adultery. And if you know the story of David, we'd also have to add murder because he chose to murder uh, Uriah so that he would try to cover this, this thing. So in this family tree of Jesus, there's a lot of messed up people. There's a lot of sin, a lot of shame, and Matthew doesn't seem to hide. He just runs it up the flagpole so everyone can see it. And the thing is, this genealogy could have been written without some of those names even mentioned. But perhaps God is trying to tell us something through this. Perhaps God is intentional about this by having this within the Bible. And then then it even continues into the part of the story where there's even more shame with the characters that we're familiar with, right? Jesus was born to an unmarried couple living in poverty. Now, if I were God, and I think we can all agree and be thankful that I'm not, right? But if I were God, I I would have written the story differently. I would want Jesus born into a happily married family, right? The, the couple was married for four to five years. They have this, uh, they're financially stable. They have this four to five bedroom home. They have a 100% hyperallergenic, kid-friendly labradoodle, right? They have this, uh, you know, this safety-approved SUV with this Rava car seat all ready to go for baby. You know, that's how I would have written the story. See, I'd want Jesus to be born into a wealthy family with a good reputation. I'd want him to have the best education and the greatest opportunities so that he could accomplish the mission, like if I were God, that that I sent him on. And yet the details around the Christmas story are so fragile. They're so fragile. He was born to a couple that wasn't even married yet, and they were living in poverty. Jesus was born into an environment where where Herod, King Herod, had just issued a decree that all the baby boys born during this time would be killed. And you've got to step back and ask, what is God doing with this? Why is he allowing all this stuff to happen as part of the Christmas story? I mean, we just saw the family line of Joseph full of shameful past, and now Mary is pregnant. She's not even married. I mean, try to put yourself in her sandals and think about that, how that would have felt. And maybe someone, some of you don't even have to imagine that. Maybe that is your story. Maybe that is the story of your, your daughter, your sister, somebody that you love. Now, now in Mary's time, in Mary's time, this, this would have created a fair amount of fear, a whole lot of uncertainty, and even more shame because uh, the culture where they lived would, would not have looked fondly on this. Mary was a teenager. Mary had hopes and dreams. She met the man of her dreams. He popped a question. She said, she said yes. And, and, and like they're, they're getting ready to get married. And now she's pregnant. When you read this story in Matthew chapter one, it's interesting. You don't hear a single word. There's not a single word recorded from Joseph. Like, like we don't know Joseph by what he said. We know Joseph by what he did. And, and what, he's, what he's planning to do is he's planning to divorce her. It says in this text, 
uh, he was considering divorcing her so that she would not be put to what? Shame. So she would not be put to shame. And then an angel appears to him in a dream, and the angel does not say, Joseph, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Don't you, don't you ever do this again. No, the angel appears to Joseph and says to Joseph, Joseph, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This, by the way, is the first time an angel appeared to Joseph. An angel appeared to Mary to give her the news that she was pregnant. That's how she found out about the pregnancy. But Joseph didn't hear that from an angel. He either heard it from Mary or maybe saw the baby bump or asked her, hey, what's going on, Mary? You're not feeling well today? Whatever. That's how he found out about this. But now, after he hears about this and makes the decision to divorce her so that Mary's not put to shame, now an angel appears to him for the very first time. And from this appearance, I want you to see three things that are so important for us to understand about shame. And here it is, and I want you to apply this to you. Now, this is not in your outline because this only came to me after the outline was printed. Uh, so, so this is kind of fresh data coming at you here. So turn your page over and just where, where it's blank, you can write this down, but this is very important for you to understand and to know. Number one is this. God does not leave us during our shameful moments. God does not leave us during our shameful moments. One of the first things to recognize about shame is that the power of shame makes us feel like God wants nothing to do with us. We have this idea, like, like, like we look at ourselves and see the shameful things that we did, and we can hardly stand to look at ourselves, and we put that on God. Like we transfer that to God and we assume that, man, if our shame, if, if our past is shameful, God must look at that as shameful as well. And we assume then that God doesn't want to have anything to do with us. Like we're disgusting, so God must think we're disgusting as well. For Joseph, he could have easily thought that his life was falling apart. Right, He's about to break off this engagement. He knows what will happen to Mary. He knows that she might die as a result of this. And he's probably wondering, where is God in this moment? Because for us right now, there's a lot of shame or potential shame that's going to come out of this. Where is God in this moment? And then God speaks to him. God speaks to him through this angel. And at that moment, Joseph knows that God is still present. God is still present even in this shameful moment. In this moment where Joseph could have easily assumed that God wants nothing to do with him, he discovers that God is closer than ever before. And this is something that you need to realize as well. All of us. God does not leave us during our shameful moments. Get over the idea that God is looking for perfectionism before he will move into your lives to do something amazing. It's not how he works. No, he's, he, he will come into you just the way you are. In fact, it's because of your disgrace and shame that God wants everything to do with you. That's when he wants to move in. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to back off. He's not going to put you out of his mind. No, that's when he's going to lean into you. It's in those moments of shame and disgrace. Now, this is not to imply uh, that Joseph and Mary had sinned because they did not, as far as we know. Uh, Joseph was a righteous man, right? Mary was a, a pure virgin. They did not sin. This is only to say that in their moment of shame, God was present. God was there. The second thing that I want you to know when it comes to this idea of shame is I want you to be confident in God's opinion of you. Be confident in God's opinion of you. The angel says to Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. 
See, the power of shame is that we fear judgment and condemnation from other people. That's what shame is, right? Shame is not simply how we feel about ourselves. Shame is magnified by how we think other people are going to see us. What are other people going to say about us? And that's what magnifies the shame. It's not just that we feel terrible about our own situation. I mean, most of us do. We like, like, I can't believe we did this and we're, we're kind of sorry that we did this, but we feel terrible because we think other people outside of our situation will look at us and judge us for what we've done. So it's not only our burden we carry, but we also carry the burden that we feel other people have placed on us, and we live in fear of that, don't we? What will people think? What are they going to say? Well, now the text says that Joseph was faithful to the law, so we're not just speculating about how he felt about this. He knew exactly what this would mean for him and his family. He knew exactly what this would mean for Mary and her family. He knew exactly what, what would happen in the village. He knew exactly the public disgrace that was often associated with things like this. And he's feeling shame and no doubt the fear of what would happen next. And in that moment, God steps in through this angel and says to Joseph, Joseph, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what those people think. Don't be afraid of what they're going to say about you. Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. And in that moment, Joseph knows God's opinion of him. Joseph knows God's opinion of him, which by the way, is far more important than anyone else's opinion. And that's something that we need to internalize as well. We need to be confident in God's opinion of us and hold that higher than any, anyone else's opinion. But see, in reality, we live in such fear of what other people think about us, don't we? We, we live in fear of what they're going to say about us. But you know what you need to realize is that everybody else out there is just as messed up as we are. Right? So don't go by their opinion. Don't be sensitive to their opinion. Be sensitive to what God thinks about you instead. And what does God say to us in our shameful moments? What does God say to us in those moments where we mess up? Man, there's this passage in the book of Romans that I was, I was working in, and I'm going to give some of that to you on the Christmas message on uh, Christmas morning. But in Romans, there's this passage in chapter 8 that says there's no height, there's no depth, there's nothing at all in all creation that can separate you from what? The love of God, God's life in you. Listen, nothing that you have done in your past, no amount of shame, no amount of, of, of mess up, no, it doesn't matter. The worst thing that you have done cannot separate you from the love of God. Now, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of the prodigal son. And, and I, don't, I don't know why, perhaps because I, I was him. And uh, so the prodigal son, the story goes something like this, right? The son says, hey, I want my inheritance I want my father's blessing. I want to do life on my own. I'm going to step outside of the home here and I'm just going to, I'm just going to do things my way. The father gave him his portion of the inheritance and gave him his blessing. And the son goes off and it says he just lived kind of that wild life and, uh, squandered his money and all kinds of foolish things. And then he got, he got to that place of ultimate shame. He's feeding pigs. He's feeding pigs and he's hungry. So he starts eating the pig food, the stuff that he's given to the pigs. And he's, he's, he's kind of in this moment of utmost shame. And in that moment, he recognizes that, man, I've had a good in my father's house. And so he decides to go back home. Now, when he goes back home, he is so shame-filled that he says, I'm not even worthy to be my father's son anymore. So I'm going to go back and just ask him if I can be a hired servant. 
But on his way back, remember what happens? As he's coming back, the father sees him and runs to meet him, runs to meet him. That's what the father does. Remember, this is a picture of God, right? Here's a person in their shame, coming out of their shame, wanting to come out of their shame. And the father runs to meet them. And when he meets him, he throws his arms around him and hugs him, gives him a ring on his finger, puts a robe around him and throws a feast to celebrate the fact that he came home. That's God's opinion of you. God's opinion of you is, man, you squandered it. You did your own thing, man. You messed up. So stick with it. Find your own way in life right now. I'm not going to hug you smelly person, right? But no, the father wants you to come back home. Again, it doesn't matter what level of shame you have in your life. It doesn't matter where you've been. The father is waiting to give you a hug and welcome you back home again. That is God's opinion of you. God says to Joseph, Joseph, don't be afraid to step into my plan. Don't be afraid to do this. I know there's a lot of shame that's associated with this. And I know you want to protect Mary from all this shame. And you're concerned about what the people will say and do and what the law will do with this. But no, Joseph, don't be afraid. You just run to me. Run to me in my plan. Take Mary as your wife. And hearing from God was enough to take that shame off his shoulders. And he did exactly, exactly what God asked him to do. Listen, I want you to be confident of God's opinion of you. Not what other people say or think. I want you to be confident of what God thinks about you. And the last thing I want you to know about shame is this. God can use our most disgraceful moments. He can use them. The angel said to Joseph, listen, she, Mary, this person that I want you to take as your wife right now, in in the midst of all this shame, I want you to take Mary uh, because she is going to give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he is going to save his people from their sins. See, one of the final powers of shame is the belief that in the moments that, that our moments of shame can never be redeemed. And the most that we can hope for is that we can just put them behind us. So we have all this shame and it's like all this stuff that we've done. Let's just put it in this black hole and the best that we can ever do perhaps with our disgraceful past that that we never want to look at again is just leave it behind us and that would be a win for us, right? That's the ultimate win for many of us to simply put shame behind us. And I wonder if Joseph maybe felt that same way as he thinks about this moment in his life where everything seems to be going wrong. Everything seems to be falling apart for him. Nothing good is ever going to come from this. So let's just part ways and just kind of, kind of go on the shelf somewhere and just exist. But then God speaks and he announces his plan to do something magnificent with this moment. This painful moment in Joseph's life. This son that is going to be born is going to save his people from their sins. Listen, this is proof, church, that God can and will use the most disgraceful moments of our lives to bring life and hope to other people around us. And this is something only God can do. But it's what he does. This is what he does. He's able to take the lowest moments of our entire life, the moments that you just want to bury, the moments that you wish would never come to the surface again, the moments that you just want to forget about. But he can take those moments and make them the strength of your life. Blessing, not just for yourself, but even for other people. This is what God does. This is who he is. He takes Joseph's shame and makes it his glory. He takes Mary's shame and makes it his glory. You know what else he does? He takes the cross, the symbol 
the symbol of torture and shame, and he makes it an instrument of hope for people that have, for thousands and thousands of years, who have surrendered their lives, whose sins have been surrendered uh, to that cross for his glory. Because you know what happened on that cross? On that cross, our shame was covered. Our shame was covered by the blood of Jesus. Now, remember David's story? So David had this double sin thing in his life, right? He committed adultery. And then he tries to cover that adultery with murder. And it didn't work. It did not work at all. It was only when he confessed and came clean, right, from all of those sins that things began to work in his life. And here's what it says in Psalm 32, verse 1. David writes and says, Blessed or oh, how happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. That's what happens on the cross because Christ went to that cross to take all of our sins, all of our shame, and it can be left there. That's the power of God. That's what God does. He's able to take the moments that you never want to look at. He's able to take those moments that you never want to relive. He's able to take those moments and he covers them. And then he turns those moments into something that you would have never believed could have happened. And that happens the very moment that our shame is surrendered. So number one, our shame is covered. Number two, our shame is surrendered. See, the covering is what God does. The surrendering is what you do. That's what we do. And we do that by releasing, by releasing all the shame that we carry with us, shame that's known, shame that's not known. We release that and we surrender to God who's waiting and ready to do something amazing with it. With it. And in just a moment, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to surrender, but not before I tell you what you can expect. See, when we surrender, then our shame is replaced. Watch this. There's a story in the Old Testament of this woman by the name of Tamar. We saw that name in the genealogy of Joseph. But one day she was raped by her half-brother Amnon. Quite a story. And she puts on she puts ashes on her head and it says she walks away in humiliation and shame. Now watch this. In Isaiah 61, God says, I will take the ashes of humiliation and I will take the ashes of shame and I will give you instead the beauty of a garland. That's what he does. He exchanges our shame, our humiliation, all of that past for a garland. It's a sign of victory. He says, I will take the oil of gladness and I will give it to you instead of mourning and I will give you the garments of praise instead of fainting. I'm going to give you joy to substitute for that awful shame and it will be put away so that you can march on. You know what that's called? That's called grace. That is called grace. God's amazing grace. And that's what overshadows our shame. That's what we exchange. God's amazing grace. Yeah, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it, but he gives it. He gives it because he loves us. He gives it because he wants us to live in freedom. He wants us to live someday eternally with him. And so he was willing to do all of this and take it away. Yes, my mom is right. I should be ashamed of myself for some of my life choices. But my shame is covered. My shame is surrendered. And my shame is replaced. If anyone ever comes to you and says, listen, you ought to be ashamed of your past. You ought to be ashamed for what you did. 
you too can say, yes, but my shame is covered. My shame is surrendered. And my shame is replaced by God's grace. So it's not your shame anymore. It's been taken by Christ. As we sing this last song together, I want to give you an opportunity to surrender that shame. This may be the day when you're like, man, yeah, I've got this stuff going on every single day. I just, I still can't face a certain person. I still have to like go in opposite direction because I'm ashamed to kind of go face to face with them. Things yet are not resolved. Or maybe you're like, man, I've, if people knew what I was doing, if people knew what I was into, if someone knew what my thought life was like, man, I'd be so ashamed of myself. That's that inward shame that you don't have to carry. You don't have to carry that. So, so here's what I want you to do today. And, and, and you can do this how, however God leads you. Shame is this, is, this is maybe more personal, right? Than the fears that were that we surrendered. I don't, have, I don't have any shame buckets up here today. But if you want to come to the altar and just kneel here, there will be someone, one of us will come and pray with you. And this is simply to release that shame in your life and surrender to God's grace. Because God's grace is enough for all of us. Balcony, online, in, down, every one of us can be covered by the grace of God. It's his gift to you. That's what he came for. It's something to celebrate, isn't it? I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to pray for you. And then, you know, even if you don't want to come forward today, maybe right where you're standing today. Maybe you just want to pause for a moment in the song and maybe in your own way, just breathe a prayer to Jesus and say, Jesus, today I surrender. I surrender this grace because most of us, most of us kind of resemble brokenness, broken vessels, right? I mean, we've made decisions and we've messed up and we've thought, we, all that kind of stuff just kind of breaks our relationship with God. And I believe he wants to heal that today for someone in this room. I got to thank you today for your amazing grace, that grace which covers all of our shame. Today, my prayer would be that maybe one of us in this room today would say yes God, I want to surrender that shame, my shame to you. I, I want to be released of it so that I can live in complete freedom. I don't want to, I'm tired of covering my tracks. I'm tired of living with this. I'm tired of carrying this around. I'm tired of trying to stay away from this person or that situation or whatever because it's so shameful. God, my prayer also would be that you would take our shame and just do something amazing with it. Turn it into something magnificent, just like you did with Mary and Joseph, so that it would come to serve and, and help other people in some way, somehow. And maybe that could be a part of our surrender and our prayer also today. So I ask you now to surrender as we sing together.